Hey everyone, this is Will from Charlotte, North Carolina, and welcome to this brand new and exciting episode of The Missing Piece. Now, over the weekend, if you follow the news closely, Emmanuel Macron successfully secured another five years of his presidency. So, which means for the following five years, Macron will continue to lead the country and his people onto another, what he called, anti-establishment political path. But meanwhile, as the whole world is focusing on the celebration and the anticipation of Emmanuel Macron, but we also need to talk about another country is strategically located in the continent of Europe, which is Germany. And as we know that not too long ago, the former Chancellor Angela Merkel stepped down from her position, and the successor is called Chancellor Schultz. It looks like he's going to take the country onto a new path. So that's why today it's so important in this episode and we need to talk about where this brand new chancellor is leading the country and why some expert is calling that the party within Germany today, it somehow is having this mixed message regarding the political identity. So that's why today, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite an author, James Halls, to the show. And again, he's the author of the book called The Shortest History of Germany from Julius Caesar to Angela Merkel. And again, James and I were going to talk about this amazing article he wrote and also something deeper beyond this article. Without further ado, James, and welcome to The Missing Piece. Well, it's great to be with you here from uh, from England. Thank you. Now, again, as I mentioned in the intro, this is something that is so critical and urgent that we need to discuss at this moment. Not too long ago that you wrote this article, and the article is entitled, The Real Reason Germany is Always Afraid, Berlin Hesitate on Everything Because of Its Ruling Party's Identity Problems. Now, can you help us to understand from this fundamental level, what does that mean when you say this political party today, it's suffering or it's struggling with, with this identity problems? What is your take on that? Well, I think that the most important thing for, for a transatlantic listener to understand about German politics, and it actually should be quite easy for you guys over there, is that German politics is not really national any more than US politics. Germany is split into what you guys would probably call red or blue states, mm. just as profoundly. And in fact, if you think about it just for a moment, the phenomenon of a united Germany is very recent. It's only one year after the Battle of Gettysburg. Prussia, which had been an entirely separate country for the whole of German history, defeated all the rest of Germany in what historians often wrongly call the Austro-Prussian War. In fact, every one of the four German kingdoms, apart from Prussia, backed Austria, and they kept on fighting even after Austria got catastrophically defeated at the famous Battle of Königgratz, the biggest battle in Europe between Napoleon and the First World War by a mile. Now, so in other words, at exactly the same time as you guys have just about finished your fight, well, if you ever really did, about the belonging as a one nation United States, mm. the Germans were just entering on that period. Um, and for the next 20 years, Germany was dominated by what you might say is a kind of German form of reconstruction, where the new Prussian rulers who'd won their civil war tried to impose their culture on the much older 
Catholic south of Germany. Mm. And that's the vital thing for, for you, for, for foreigners, and I don't just mean Germans, English people don't understand this either. Germany is fundamentally split between the very ancient Catholic West, which was thoroughly Romanized by the Roman Empire, and the much younger East, which was not even German till about 1200 AD, which was always characterized by this notion of a conflict or a need to make a deal with the Slavic tribes, which would later on coalesce into mm. Russia. That's all. So you have two Germanies with entirely different existential imperatives. On the one hand, the old Catholic West, whose imperative is basically to get along with France, or at times to resist France. On the other hand, the much younger colonial East, which has always had, you know, Polish and Czech minorities in it, mm. whose existential imperative has always been, we either have to whip the Russians or do a deal with them. Mm. And, and that's, those are the two totally different strands in German politics. And without that, you can't, if you, and if you just, if you, if your listeners just take a look at any map of a German election, you will see it is just as striking as the red-blue states in America. Geography really is fate in this case too. Mm. Now, the problem we have now in Germany is that historically, and if you again, I'd love it if we could just say to your viewers, hey, quickly, call up on Wikipedia the, the map of the German <laughs> elections, the German Reichstag elections 1912, say, just before the First World War. Maybe your listeners would like to do that for themselves. Mm. And you will see there are essentially three blocks before the First World War. Ge the east of Germany is far bigger then, don't forget. Uh, it went right to the Germany before the First World War went right over into what's present day Russia. In fact, my father in law was brought up there in the 1930s mm. and it was still very much colonial, like the antebellum South. The Germans were a minority who ruled over Slavic minorities ruthlessly right up to the 1930s. Not it wasn't invented by the Nazis, the Nazis loved that idea, it was their blueprint for what they called you know the new world order. Mm. So, you had the east of Germany, going right over into present-day Russia, where everybody always voted for their own tough guys. Because guess what? They're a colony. They're scared of a kind of uprising of the, of the, of the underlings. So they, mm. they vote for authoritarians. In the West, you have the ancient Catholics. Now, this leaves one block in the middle. Once Germany's united, there's this curious block, the North German Protestants. They are not, and never have been, colonial Prussians. They're not, and never have been, ancient catholic southerners mm. so what are they they've only existed since martin luther's time and never had a state of their own and they are the guys who are caught in the middle they are the people who and i think this is a thought your listeners might be interested in they will adopt an ideology the ideology of socialism mm. i think there's a really strong and interesting argument as a kind of take home from this for your listeners is it possible that it's only countries so only cultures which don't have a strong identity which need ideologies mm. you think about the truly powerful countries of world history they never really had what we would call a political ideology political ideologies are for, are for cultures which are not really sure of themselves so in the course of the 19th century these new north german protestants remember the states only existed since 1871 they adopt international socialism as their kind of ersatz identity so they say, okay, we're not Catholic Germans, we're not Prussian Germans, we're going to be like everywhere Germans, we're going to be international Germans. And people like Lenin and Stalin believe that the world revolution is going to be led by these guys because they're the biggest, right. the best, best funded social democrat party in the world. The problem for today's social democrat party, in a nutshell, is they, they are the heirs of that. And they have never truly, as I, I say it with great regret, 
they have never truly abandoned their roots in this kind of Marxist ideology. Mm. They still have this kind of knee-jerk idea of respect for yeah, Bolsheviks, for revolutionaries who may be violent, for that notion of a socialist international brotherhood, which frankly was always a mad dream and is way, way out past its sell by now. And that's their problem now. Mm. You know, James, it's so interesting today. Again, that's the reason why when I started the intro and the, the topic regarding the country of France, you know, for so long, I'm sure that you as an author and also as a historian, that we believe there were, I mean, should, should I say there is, there's a much greater purpose for someone as Emmanuel Macron got elected, you know, for his second presidency, because again, for so long that he was called this anti-establishment. So in other words, he was trying to bring this fresh new ideas coming to the political arena. But meanwhile, again, James, you focus on this identity, this political identity in Germany. We know that for so long that Angela Merkel, she was the chancellor and she was trying really hard to lead the country onto this different path. You know, I guess you could call it a religious path or Christian path or, you know, this internationalism. But as soon as the position was taken over by Schultz, and it seemed the country is guiding or is being guided towards another direction. So from your perspective, James, how does the current chancellor different or how is the current chancellor different from the political ambition comparing with Angela Merkel? Well, in fact, in the most vital question of the moment, Ukraine and Russia, he actually differs very little from her because, uh, and I was a great fan of Merkel, but, and I wrote a sort of valediction for her last year for one of the big English newspapers. But even then I pointed out back in September, you know, she has left Germany at the mercy of Russian energy blackmail. Mm. I, along with most people, did not realize just how soon and how serious that was going to be. Schultz has in a sense inherited that problem from her, but it's totally tied up with his own party. The not now notorious Gerhard Schröder, who is the last German Chancellor from the SPD, from Scholz's party, is of course well known now to be completely networked in with, he's on the board of Gazprom for Christ's sake, he's an absolute Putin fan, a paid up, a paid up servant of, of the Russian military oligarchy and Putin state. Mm. And so that that cozy relationship was was dangerous enough under Merkel, but it's, it's, it's far more, it seems to be far more crippling to German foreign policy under a party which is, has this kind of instinctive knee-jerk, which I'm sorry to say includes a large amount of anti-Americanism. Mm. It always has had that. Now, post-war Germany, the modern Germany, originally, of course, much smaller than it is now until 1990, was dominated by the CDU, the, the heir of the Catholic Centre Party, under the, the great Chancellor Adenauer the father of modern Western Germany, who made no bones about it. We are of the West, he said. He didn't even want the East, German, East Germany back, in fact. Um, he was absolutely convinced that the alliances with France and America had to be both maintained, the absolute keystones. And, and, and that's what was the, really what, what, what anchored America into Europe and vice versa. But from, from the 1960s onwards, and it's interesting, it's 1969, it's the birth of that sort of boomer generation in politics. Mm. The SDP first came back to power after the First Second World War, and they came back on a, on a kind of implicitly anti-American ticket. They called it Eastern politics. What it meant was, at least by implication, 
they were gently going to break ranks with the commitment to NATO and and and, and pursue an independent foreign policy with Germany, with Russia, which interestingly from the very start was a swap of energy for technology. This goes right back to 1970. So ever since then, particularly the SDP, but also unfortunately Merkel as well, have pursued this this sort of goal, which is putting Germany's relationship with Russia in a kind of separate box mm. from its relationship with NATO and the EU, which is a very dangerous game, and it's really coming back to bite bite them in the in the, the backside, if you excuse my English now. Mm. You know, I, James, I want to read something that you know you wrote in the article, and I quote. 50 members of the European Parliament sent a letter to Schultz urging him to take a stand on the right side of the history. So in other words, again, this is something that you touch on briefly. As soon as the war broke out in Ukraine and ever, pretty much every single member within the NATO and also within the European countries that condemned this criminal-like uh, uh, idea or this behavior from Vladimir Putin... But Chancellor Schultz refused to join the conversation or refused to take such actions. I guess you explain that reason is because this political ties or this anti-American establishment idea that motivated him to refuse to take the stand against the Putin. But is there anything beyond that what you just shared with us? So in other words, you think about it. If he's lining himself with Vladimir Putin or someone as Vladimir Putin, he's basically also playing a dangerous game with the international community, especially in the midst of the war, don't you think? What you have to understand, Willie, it, it, like, like all politics, it, it comes down to party politics. We'd like to think of our statesmen as doing things out of conviction and out of a duty to the world and so forth all too frequently. And we know this in every country. People actually act out of interest of how they're going to get elected next time. And the truth of the matter is Schultz knows damn well that he was only really became chancellor because the voters of the extreme left party, now Germany has, unlike Britain or America, has five viable parties. The ex he managed to persuade the voters of the hard left party, who were pretty unashamed about their kind of ongoing love of Lenin and the hatred of NATO. Mm. He, managed, he, managed, he managed to persuade about 850,000 of them to shift to his party. That, that was just enough to see him in. Without, the, without those votes, he would never have got it. And throughout his campaign, to be elected last year, he refused every time to, to rule out a coalition with these guys, even though they're openly calling for the dissolution of NATO mm. and so forth. So he is a prisoner in electoral, cephalogical terms. He is a, partly a prisoner of his own party's constituency, many of whom have this distinct admiration for, well, Bolshevism, communism, what you want to call it, and a distinct anti-Americanism. Now, and that's the, his problem. So he, he, he actually did announce famously about a month ago this great uh, epochal change in German foreign policy, they called it, a Zeitenwende, literally meaning a change of the times. It was going to be a, a new epoch. And everyone was amazed. Everyone was really glad. But then absolutely nothing happened until this weekend, finally, today, yesterday, he's fi finally we hear that Germany, the great fanfare is going to send, well, they're going to send 50... 10-year-out-of-date anti-aircraft panzers, which are frankly, you know, most people would say these things are not only been in the garage for 10 years, mm. but what use is a 35-millimeter cannon against a T-72? Not much. Is it used against a drone? Probably not even. It's probably too big a caliber for a drone. It's a kind of symbol. They're not going to be much good. It's not what the Ukrainians wanted. They want proper battle tanks. 
you know. Um, so he's, he's finally shifting, but, and it's not just me saying that, there are many politicians in Germany itself and commentators uh, who, are, who are dismayed by this. The, his, own, his own coalition partners, it, it sounds bizarre to, to, to we in Britain and you in America probably, but the Green Party, who we regard in, in Britain usually as being fairly left-wing and anti and pacifist, those guys are all gung-ho for sending stuff. Mm. Yeah, they, 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 they actually, the, the Green Party is much more bellicose than the Socialist Party. Um, the Conservative Party has been crying for weeks for them to do more about it. So it's not just foreigners, there's people inside there. But unfortunately, as I say, that the SDP has this problem that it's, because it's, 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 it's imprisoned with this notion of, of a fear of being taken over by, by American or it preceded by British in the 19th century, actually, but then it transferred that to Americanization mm. because it doesn't really know itself. It's, it's ended up too much in hock, as we say in Britain, meaning in debt to its own ultra left wing. Um, who are normally, they're normally cauterized off into this separate little party called Die Linke. But, um, but, um, but Schultz, as I say, he got elected by appealing to those voters. And, and he's just too scared as a party politician to offend them too much, I suspect. It's as simple as that. You know, because I say most politics, it comes down to who's, which governor is going to elect it next time, who's going to be offended, are you going to lose voters by this and that policy? Mm. And there are, there always have been, it, it, over the years, foreign observers are constantly amazed uh, when the, when Germ the German population in general is asked which country they trust or distrust, they're constantly amazed at the levels of distrust of America and at the abnormal levels of kind of sort of friendship towards Russia, which the Germans manifest. It's a, it's, it's a real sort of national phenomenon, which unfortunately in this case is becoming a political, you know, a political barrier to action. And it's doing Germany's international standing an awful lot of bad. I mean, there are people, you know, people in Southern Europe, for example, in Greece, Portugal, Spain. These guys were told after the financial crash 2010, and frankly, they were told largely by Germany, you have got to take a massive haircut mm. on your economy now. You've got to suffer huge austerity because you've broken the financial rules to get your budget straight. But mm. faced with an actual war, an invasion by Russia, the German government seems absolutely unwilling to take equivalent measures that might damage its own economy, like turn off the gas. Germany is so dependent on Russian gas that Germany pays Putin, I think it's $2.5 billion per month mm. for gas. That's money which is paying for his mercenaries, paying for his new tanks, paying for keeping his people quiet. Mm. And Germany could, it could turn it off, maybe not from one hour to the other, of course, but it could certainly, it could take the hit because Germany, of all the countries in the world, you know, any of your students who are economically literate will know this, um, can borrow at virtually nothing. It can borrow at the lowest rates of any major industrialized country. Mm. Uh, it's, it, it can borrow. It can borrow as much as it wants at less at about 0.4 percent, which is like free money because it has such a huge export surplus. Everyone knows it. They could borrow enough to cushion their economy from any possible effects. In fact, to cushion the whole of Europe if they wanted to. Most people think it would just take two or three months of a total gas shutoff to to bring Russia's war machine to a complete halt. It could be the war could be won like that. Mm. Ma many people believe, but Germany does not seem able to to, to 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 sort of steal itself because it doesn't seem to have the trust in its own social stability to do that. It's as though people, particularly in the SDP, are worried that you know the slightest rise in unemployment, the slightest rise in inflation or government debt is somehow going to blow this whole society apart. You know, unlike the Greeks or the Portuguese who were capable of taking massive cuts mm. after 2010. 
And that's an interesting, that, that sense of national fragility is something which is very peculiarly German. They don't trust themselves to some extent. And that's not only the SDP, I think. Um, there's, a, this, there's this abiding fear in Germany because they've misunderstood their own history, I think, mm. that if they, if they don't start being the world's best people, they might just whisper it, stop being those Nazis again, mm. you know? It's a deep fear in Germany. And, and it's, it's, it's for most Germans, it's totally unjustified because most of them never did vote Nazi, we forget. That's um, right. Hitler's you know, triumph was, was entirely contingent on that Eastern vote. You know, James, it's so interesting as I was listening to how you describe this political ambition has completely blinded this political figure. You know, again, I think because the war in Ukraine, every single nation is standing at the crossroads. Not only that you are saying that domestically speaking in Germany, people are not trusting or I guess that even the politicians are losing their trust uh, within this political party. But let's talk about something happening in U.S. as well. Back in 2016, when Donald Trump became the president for the country, and he brought this brand new idea, but this idea has actually been existed for so long, and this is what we called nationalism. But even in the in this political sense, that he he crowned this term called nationalistic agenda. You know, at the beginning, when when the people on the left, I, I guess we called them the the, the Democrats. When they hear the word nationalistic agenda, and which means it's the opposite of liberalism. So in other words, they are going to close down the borders and they are going to be anti-immigrants uh, and they're going to uh, completely put American interests the first. But because this nationalistic agenda, they elevated someone as Donald Trump to the next level. And again, we don't have to talk about this January 6 um, chaos because that's a whole new chapter. But just based on what I said, James, from your perspective and looking at the party under Chancellor Schultz today, is there a nationalistic agenda within the pocket? And if so, what does that mean today in Germany in terms of understanding nationalism and the word democracy? Can you help us to understand those two things at the same time? Absolutely. And the, the case is really very different in Germany. It's almost a mirror image. I would say. The problem with Germany is not that it's not nationalist enough. Sorry, it's not that it's too nationalist. It's the other way around. The Germans have not been confident enough. Mm. As, you, as you began rightly by saying, Germany is by far and away the biggest economy in Europe. It's the paymaster of the EU without which the EU would not function. It's the world's export champion, maybe tipped by China, maybe not. And no, no other country has this has, has economic penetration. You know, everyone wants a German car in the world, that sort of thing. Now, but they have been consistently unwilling to step up to that plate and, and, and punch their weight They've, so they, openly because they seem to, there's this, there's this idea that they are, they are pathologically non-nationalists. Mm. And there are times when, you know, it, it's good to, to have, a, have a sort of, I have a quite realistic nationalism, which says that your country's interests are in fact best served by keeping the international order going. And that might need you to step up as a nation and pull your weight and, and, not, and not be scared to be leading Europe, which is Germany's national, natural role. It's easily the biggest country in terms of population as well. Mm. You know, it, can't, and it, it seems quite weird. It's, it's constantly hiding behind. Schultz keeps saying in Germany, you know, there, there's, no, there's no room for, for sort of individual missions. Mm. The Germany can't pursue this on its own. Well, why can't it lead then? 
it seems to, it seems they want they want to hide behind this notion that we're all in this together because it, there's this too much fear, which France, for example, doesn't have at all. The French have never been in the least scared about pulling their own you know, about. Yes, they support the EU, but they've never been at all scared about having going their own way. You know, they broke with NATO in the sixties. They have their own nuclear deterrent and totally independent of Britain and America. Um, Germany does seem scared of that, and it's it's not. It's not a it's not a kind of renewed nationalism in the sense of Trumpian nationalism that would be the problem. It's simply they're not they're not prepared to do a kind of a large scale version of what you might call civic nationalism, which is like doing the right thing because mm. they're too scared of being perceived by others and perceived by of themselves as being as being too nationalist. There's this it's, it's this excessive desire for kind of peace at any price and to hide behind internationalist slogans, particularly on the SBD, which has always had been that way inclined, mm. uh, rather than actually admitting the fact that, look, Europe is a uni united bunch of nations, each of which has its own interests, but whose interests are best served if they all stand up together mm. against currently against this extremely large and devouring imperialist nation whose, whose intentions towards its neighbours, not just the Ukraine, have been made pretty public. You know, if they if they if they had if they had just been able to march into Ukraine as they confidently expected they would, then you know what would the Poles and the Bolts and the Finns be thinking right now? You know, they would be massing troops on their border desperately and asking for American That's American right. troops to move to their borders right now. So we've been given a breathing space by Ukraine. It's a breathing space which Germany of all countries should should be standing up to lead and not 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 as a as a, as a, as a an autarkic national power who's only after its own good, but as a, as a power which recognises that its own good is in fact in keeping Europe and the world order, which mm. is very profitable to Germany, going. It, you know, Germany needs a liberal world order. As an export power, Germany needs free trade. Mm. It needs a rule-based system more than probably any other country in the world. It can't afford to play around with, you know, fantasies, which the British are as well a bit, of being, you know, lock ourselves off from world trade. We'll do it on our own. Britain first, America first, whatever. Those kind of weird things just harm world trade in the end. And Germany, as, as the world's export trade, export meister, they call themselves, he, they need that to keep going more than anyone else. So it's in their own interest to ensure the survival of the liberal world order. And they should be standing up for that. Mm. They are moving, but it's very slow. Mm. James, I want to go back to the article that, again, something that you wrote, and again, it's, it's amazing that how you pinpointed some of the critical matters within the country. Now, this is what you wrote. I quote, Germany's national fearfulness, it's not xenophobic, but germanophobic. And they, or rather a specific larger group of them, are worried that the moment they stop being absolutely on their guard, terrible things will happen. Now, sounded to me is, again, you know, we're looking at one of the countries that, again, you, are, you could say one of the largest economies in Europe. And again, we will look at the history. Germany, this country, used to dominate almost the world. I mean, it terrifies the entire world just to think about this political ambition and the political figure. But today, that based on what you wrote, and you will say, again, if I interpreted the message well, it's the people, they are absolutely anxious about anything that terrible could happen if they stop, you know, being absolutely on their guard. So, James, what, yep. does that, what does that mean? Does, does that mean this today's political parties or national identities, it's in deep crisis? And if that's so, 
how should the NATO's or how should any other countries continue to work comfortably with the country of Germany, you know, in terms of politically or economically? Why would you write that way? Well, that's precisely, you put your finger on it there, and that's precisely what the, the, my, my book on German history ends up with a plea for. It's a plea for us to truly understand for both for Europeans and Germans to understand their own history. This, this, this sense of worry about what they might turn into themselves is, of course, based on, on the history of Nazism. We do, there, are, there are still people alive who remember it, ter the terrible things done in the name of Germany. And in three, two generations since the First World War, three generations, maybe four, have been schooled very assiduously. The Germans have been great about this in, in talking about their own problem and acknowledging the horrors mm. of the Third Reich and making sure it can never happen again and so forth. One of the problems with that is that they, it, it's been a kind of blanket guilt. And it has not, it, it, they've, they've always addressed the problem as the Germans chose Hitler. The Germans did this. Therefore, all the Germans. Now, and if you look at the electoral maps, say, of 1930, 1931, 1932, when Hitler's taking power, these are the decisive, terrible years of the collapse of German democracy. Mm. Nothing could be clearer than the fact that all comes from a specific part of Germany. It comes from the east. The, the western, the southern, the southwestern Catholic regions of Germany never give Hitler a majority, ever. Mm. In the far east of Germany, in what's now Russia and Poland, they give him enormous majorities. And it's their votes that get him in. His decisive breakthrough to a national state, however, this is probably the most important point in terms of Schultz and the SPD, it's when Hitler finally manages to break through to a national status rather than just the heir of the authoritarian East is that Protestant voters in North Germany switch to him. Not all of them by any means, but enough of them to give him a national, national majority. And that, I think, is the key to this, this, this fearfulness in the SPD. They know, frankly, they know very well that their constituency... And I write, as I write in the article in foreignpolicy.com, there's, if you imagine the Venn diagram, your, your, your listeners can probably do this. Mm. Here, here's a circle saying SPD vote. Mm. In Venn diagram terms, that circle exists totally within a larger circle, which is North German Protestants. They don't all vote SDP, but almost all the SDP votes come from them. But unfortunately, a large number of them of the, of the northern German Protestants switched to Hitler in those vital years. And it's that plus the massive votes in the East which helped, which, which made it possible for him to take power. If every German, to put it polemically and simply, if every German had voted the way people in Bonn or Munich vote, Hitler would never have got to power. Mm. It was, so he's backed by this block of the East, but assisted at the vital moment by switches from the North German Protestants, Emilia. Now, and I think that lurks in the back of the SPD to this day. This, so there's their split between their own hard, there's, there's a hard left element within them, which is clung on to that notion of anti-Americanism, socialist internationalism. But there's deep in their own hearts, there's this sense that they're not really sure of their own, of their own electorate, because they know that once in the, in the past, at a vital moment, they did actually swing to the bad guys, so to speak. Mm. And that, and that was a vital, a vital time for them. So, in, so I think that Germany Germany could free itself in a way from its own history, and the rest of us could stop throwing the Third Reich in Germany's face all the time, if we actually look at German history properly and realise that it only, that Hitler only came to power because of certain Germans, not all of them by any chance, not any means, and that you know what you what we used to call West Germany 
in you know right up to reunification the Federal Republic of Germany. Mm. It, it wasn't a Nazi-free zone in terms of voters, but it was an area where the Nazis never, ever got more than about 30-35% ever, even at the height of Hitler's power. Whereas what was the old East Germany, there are places there where he was getting like 70% in free elections. So the, the Germans, because they, they, they have swamped themselves understandably with this cultural guilt, but it's been a too indiscriminate cultural guilt by not understanding their own history they have, they have made people who really don't need to be guilty mm. or on their guard against being nazis feel guilty about it mm. and that's meant that even people who are absolutely wedded to the western political alliance western political tradition they still feel constrained by this fear of of, of acting like that of, of, of stepping up and acting in the way say france would as a major player because they just they still feel it's, it's inappropriate for Germany to do that, and they're wrong completely. Mm. And without you know, without Europe need needs a confident Germany, which is confident that it's no longer in any danger of becoming a Nazi place, mm. because most of it never really was. You know, James. We forget. So again, look, look at maps. You forget that those 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 large areas which gave Hitler 70 percent votes. Mm. They're not only they're they're gone. They're not even they're not even in the new in the old East Germany. They're in Poland and Russia now. Mm. They are gone forever. Seventeen million German uh, Germans from those areas are, you know, either you know, were kicked out or killed by the Russians. Mm. Those areas, those eastern areas, simply no longer exist on a map. So that, so the constituency, the electorate that gave Hitler his power, just doesn't exist anymore. Mm. You know, James. Again, I know you're very busy, but I got two more questions before letting sure. you go. Now, today, fast forward. We're looking at this political party in the United States. It's completely different from when we are looking at the period of 1945 or 1942, you know, the World War II. But so my next question is, fast forward, how much does the U.S. political can influence this political shift in Germany today? So in other words, we know that since Chancellor uh, 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 Schultz took over this political party or the nation, a lot of rumors on the street that he's going to be much tougher and he's going to much be more difficult and in terms of dealing with political foes or dealing with political uh, opponents, etc. But again, so far, we have not seen any practical or feasible behaviors coming out of the party in terms of the in, uh, foreign affairs. So, James, from your perspective, how much can we expect that this Western political influence will have on the Germans a political changes today? I think we can be confident. And I'll tell you why, because we, we in Britain and America tend to overestimate the power of individual chancellors for a simple reason. The party systems are so different there. Mm. They have proportional representation. We all know the Chancellor Cole is only Chancellor because he is a Chancellor in a coalition government, which includes the Greens and the free markets, the free market warriors mm. of the FDP. It's a bizarre coalition in many ways. And even with that coalition, he's only just in power. Um, he is not an all-powerful figure like, like an American or French president at all. I mean, you know, he, he, it's, it's, it's he, like he's maybe you could compare him with an American president who has both the, both the, the, the senators and the congressmen all against him. Mm. He really has very little. Um, his 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 coalition partners are far more far keener to to play a leading role in this and to you know, 
be full partners of acting against Russia and so forth. I suspect his own days are limited. Uh, he may, he, if, if, he, if he loses the trust of his, own, of, people, of his own coalition partners, they made in new elections where I'm fairly sure he'd be kicked out. Mm. Um, and so I don't think we need, I don't think he's long for this, for this political state, for, for this political theatre. Um, and I don't think we need to fear the power because the, the overwhelming majority of Germans, which would be the three big, the three other big parties, the CDU, the Greens and the FDP, all of those guys are, are, are absolutely unambiguously pro-NATO, pro-West, anti-Russian. Mm. Um, he happens to run a coalition government, but it's a very different kettle of fish from, from say, a British Prime Minister or an American President. He's, he does not have that. And because, of course, America is, is very federal, sorry, Germany is even more strongly federal than America, mm. he just doesn't have that kind of national power even that an American President has. He doesn't, he doesn't have the power to, 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 to declare war and things like that at all. So he's, uh, he, there's, there's no need to fear him. The, the whole of Germany... It, it, overwhelmingly in the polls, including his own party members, really. Mm. Most of them are, are behind NATO, are behind the West. There's, there's no danger of Germany falling by the wayside. It's just that they, 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 they need pushing. And Germans themselves are saying this. He, he needs to be, the pressure to be kept up and say this is not good enough. Mm. It's happening right now, the Rammstein base in, Amer in the American Rammstein base in, in southern Germany. And I'm quite sure that right now he is being quietly read the riot act to mm. by his American allies. And, and I, I would be very surprised if we don't end the day with some more spectacular sounding announcements from him because he's been pushed into a corner by most of his own allies in the coalition mm. and by America you know, and by the rest of Europe. Uh, and he's not going to be able to hold, hold this line much longer. Mm. Uh, so I think we don't need to worry about that. Jeez. What will happen if there's a new American administration in a couple of years is, of course, a different matter. Well, but right now, you know, uh, with everything going on in Ukraine right now, and I want to say everything is still up in the air. Now, I want to end our conversation with something that I know you have been working on series of books, you know, uh, again, entitled The Shortest History of Many Countries. And correct, correct me if I'm wrong, I think you're also working on a book regarding the country of Ireland. Is that right? That's my, 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 my next book is The Shortest History of Ireland. That's Very right. good. So, James, can you, can you help us to understand why are you spending uh, your chunk of time or why are you interested in writing the book on the shortest history of Ireland? And also, uh, again, at the intro, um, you mentioned that there was another project that you're also working on and very proudly. So, again, let's start with the first one. Why interested in Ireland? <laughs> Uh, I had my first university job in Ireland. My wife is Irish. The histories of Ireland and England are famously entwined. Ireland is just this incredible country. And it's only five million, for God's sake. And when you think how much it punches above its weight mm. in terms of international brand awareness, let's say. You know, what country of five million is so has so many people in the world doing St. Patrick's Day parades and such like? It's, it, it's, it's a country which is, it, it is, it is fascinating that a country so small can have such international awareness. And it has such an extraordinary history. Um, again, a, mis a misunderstood one. So I, mm. I want to try to um, tell the story of that as an outsider, as I did with Germany, but trying to give people a new perspective on their own history. Mm. Just to take a really simple example, every Irishman will tell you that, you know, in 1169, England first invaded Ireland. Well, it wasn't England at all. The guys who invaded were 
French speakers from Wales. Wow. <laughs> so there's, there's, there are these huge misunderstandings that go along. And um, I hope to end the book with a, 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 real, a real suggestion mm. as to, um, as secret as yet, as, as to how to solve the problem of Northern Ireland. I've run it past a senior diplomat already, and he thinks it might be a flyer. So I hope to end with a kind of really big intervention in in the future of Ireland mm. um, here. So um, it's exciting stuff. And yeah, yeah I'm, I'm doing a big, there's a big series running right now, in fact, on the BBC called Art That Made Us. It's the history of the British Isles through works of art. Um, and uh, that's, yeah, it's, it's, all, it's all over the BBC right now. And I have the glorious title of story consultant on that because I, I'm, I was a novelist before I, before I wrote history books, you know. I'm fundamentally concerned with, with how a big story like the history of Germany or mm. England or Ireland hangs together mm. can i give that what what the guys in ucla film school would call an arc mm. can i give can i split it into three acts who's the protagonist what's the story all about you know, where are the choice points all these things i love as, as a writer of fiction i believe you can you can actually use them it doesn't mean i'm writing fictions it means that i'm trying to communicate the history of a place to people with, with all the drama of a story mm. well Jim Toss, and again, he's the author of the latest book. It's called The Shortest History of Germany, from Julius Caesar to Angela Merkel. And also, I strongly encourage everyone to go read Jim's article. Again, it's on the foreign policy. It's entitled, The Real Reason Germany is Always Afraid. Berlin Hesitates on Everything Because of Its Ruling Party's Identity Problems. James, it's been a pleasure of speaking to you, and thank you so much for taking your time to join the show. And by talking to you, it helps us indeed understand the current political identity in Germany, and also why, and I think the most important thing is, why that today the Chancellor Schultz has refused, you know, reluctantly to show his attitude especially regarding the war in Ukraine. But again, overall, James, thank you so much for doing this, and we'd love to have you back on the show for the future episodes regarding the fate of the country 